electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanier with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, an uphill climb. Leadership changes at Peloton as co-founder and CEO John Foley announces he will step down. Shares are surging. How it writes the ship coming up. Plus, a broken arm. NVIDIA's $66 billion deal collapses. What it means for both NVIDIA and ARM's upcoming IPO. And don't shoot the messenger. Meta shares continue to fall, now down 33% for the year. Early investor Peter Thiel leaving the board. And what that signals for Meta's prospects, D. Well, Carl, we have two broken deals today. One arm and NVIDIA falling apart. The other, of course, is Peloton's share price falling apart over the trend, though. Look at that turnaround today. We're going to start here with that leadership change. Former Spotify Netflix CFO Barry McCarthy is replacing co-founder John Foley as CEO. Foley will become executive chair. Shares initially plunged, as I mentioned, nearly 10 percent, but quite the rebound. They're now up more than 20. This all comes as activist investor Blackwells has been calling for Foley's departure and a sale of the company. Foley now out, at least as CEO. They also announced massive cost cuts, including the elimination of 2,800 jobs. That's roughly 20 percent of the corporate workforce. The move is expected to save $800 million in annual costs, while Peloton will also wind down a plant in Ohio. As part of the announcement, we also got to look at guidance not great here. Full year 2022 revenue is projected at 3.7 to 3.8 billion dollars down from 4.4 to 4.8 billion for Q3. Get ready for a bigger than expected loss as well. Guys, I'm trying to figure out <laughs> this massive turnaround in the stock price. Uh, why is it up? It seems unlikely now that Peloton is going to be selling itself to an Amazon or a Nike or another company. Uh, at the same time, though, John, this isn't valued like a tech company anymore. EV to sales less than three nine times price to sales? Yeah, I mean, these moves, who knows? But uh, overall, like you set it up, things fall apart, whether it's NVIDIA arm or the, uh, the old case for Peloton. We'll see what kind of new case they build. I want to actually start for a moment with arm because there are massive implications for all of technology and specifically semiconductors uh, in this. Arm is arguably the most important technology company in Europe, ASML, uh, also very important. And it's about to come public again. I'm not sure why it it ever had to be other than independent to begin with. You know, um, that was weird to me. SoftBank having it was weird. Going to NVIDIA uh, was weird because it's such an arms dealer uh, software-wise for the whole and design-wise for the whole industry. But okay, that's asset light. It's interesting. Talk about asset heavy. Bikes are heavy, Carl. And uh, that's a big part of this that investors are going to have to think about is we're talking about actual large, expensive bikes, uh, you know, a logistics system that wasn't prepared for this gigantic shift in demand. And now a CEO 
taking over who's not an inventory specialist. He's a specialist in the area of Peloton that I think you could argue was working okay before the physical goods got in there and screwed things up. Yeah, uh, the, the media generation and the sub business, John, as you point out, is one thing. But they were so vertical, D, in the manufacturing and the transportation and the servicing of that hardware. It's two very yeah. deep wells of knowledge you have to have. By the way, uh, the street's reaction today is largely about uh, impressed that they're finally coming in, uh, into these cost reduction opportunities. And as uh, as a key, for example, says today, still convinced that there is a secular shift to connected right. fitness. They keep a $60 target. Yeah, so part of the business is bullish. Uh, you just mentioned, Carl, that this was a vertically integrated company, but who can really pull that off if you're not Apple or a select few others? So, John, on that sense, I was talking to a VC this morning, Mike Gaffrey, and he said that, you know, Peloton should maybe just go all in on streaming services, and that would make Barry a good choice, which I know we're going to talk about with Julia. Uh, yeah, but try charging 40 bucks a month for just a streaming service. Nobody can do that. In this weird case, <laughs> the expensive hardware actually justifies the streaming premium. So there's a bit of a trap there. Anyway, talking about leadership changes and conundrums, let's bring in our Julia Borston as we continue to learn more about Peloton's new CEO, Barry McCarthy. Julia. Well, that's right. Barry McCarthy is really a veteran of subscription direct-to-consumer businesses. Most recently at Spotify, he was CFO and head of its free business for five years. And as CEO Daniel X's right-hand man, he helped build out the company's multiple revenue streams. And he drove Spotify's unusual direct listing, which other companies have since followed. Now, before Spotify, he had a brief stint at a mobile payment startup called Clinkle. And before that, he was Netflix's CFO for 11 years, including that crucial period when Netflix launched its streaming service. Now he has a perspective on consumer and digital trends in his board seats. He's on the board of Instacart and Spotify. He previously was on the boards of Chegg, Eventbrite, Pandora, and Rent the Runway. Now JP Morgan saying in a note this morning, quote, we believe Barry McCarthy as new CEO will be well received by the street and prove positive for the shares both near and long term. We believe he will provide a steady hand to Peloton as it works to rebuild demand while right-sizing the business. Outgoing Peloton CEO John Foley praising McCarthy as a, quote, visionary in media software subscription businesses. He might saying he might be number one in the world with his understanding and helping Reed build Netflix and Daniel with Spotify. Foley also said he's delighted that McCarthy and his wife are both big Peloton users. Guys. Yeah, Julie, I guess they'd have to be to uh, really understand the model and want to take this on. But I'm also wondering, why does he want to take this on? You just went through his career. He's done a lot. Um, do we think that he's going to stick with Peloton for the long term? Or do you think he's just going to come in here, try and beef up the business model and not sort of stay? Well, look, he's in his late 60s uh, and he's been CFO for many, many years at two now massive companies. So you can see how someone in his position who is always in that number two role and yet had very, very close understanding of how these businesses run would love the opportunity to be CEO. But I just have to point out, because you were talking about the challenges around hardware, it's interesting looking at the fact that when he was first at Netflix, they were shipping those physical discs. And he does have insight to the idea of transporting physical goods with Instacart, which is, of course, all about getting goods and, and groceries from one place to another 
fast. And Chegg also was about shipping textbooks at the time that he was there uh, and, and rent the runway as well. So he does have some interesting yeah. perspectives here. Yeah, but that's little stuff, right? That's a gallon of milk, some vegetables, a textbook. We're not talking like massive bikes. And also, interestingly, I was thinking about this. The, the Peloton subscription is priced to compete with a gym membership, right? It's not priced to compete with Fitness Plus or, say, Amazon's new Halo Fitness service. I wonder if what Peloton really needs to do is partner with gyms at this point so that people who have Peloton subscriptions get free or discounted access to gyms that also have Pelotons in them. I mean, if they're going to maintain that big subscription number, they got to build something into it, right? Well, look, they already are, are partnering with, with companies to try to get people to use Pelotons, but also they are partnering with gyms in terms of getting those Pelotons into the gyms. But look, he's had perspective on pricing before. So you, you, we keep on talking about how expensive the Peloton subscription is, and it's only worth that much because it's paired with the bike or the treadmill. Um, but look at Netflix. They just raised prices again. Spotify has not had so many price raises, but uh, but I think it'll be really interesting to see how he brings his perspective of Netflix have being and having been there for 11 years from that being tra- about transporting the discs. Yes, small discs, not big bites, but transporting discs to launching that digital service. And uh, it's b- better to have some perspective on how to ship goods than none at all, John. Uh, we're going to get to know them all a lot better, let's hope. Uh, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. It's not just Peloton that's been having a tough run. Other stay-at-home darlings like Zoom, Netflix, Teladoc have taken a hit in the past three months, some lower by as much as 40%. Joining us this morning, Fundstrat Global Advisors, Tom Lee. Talk about some of these fallen angels. Tom, good morning. Good to see you. Good morning. So when you, I mean, a lot of these names began to correct. It's, we're lapping on a full year of some of this corrective price action. I wonder how much you think has been built in and is starting to look constructive in retrospect. Uh, Carl, this is probably the time that you'd start to try to pick winners from losers because, uh, as you know, as sort of as a cohort, a lot of these stocks in 2021 had super normal demand and they became very popular. So you had a combination of both much better earnings plus a huge multiple expansion. And uh, now a lot of these are broken charts. So uh, if, if an investor does their homework, I, I do think you're going to find some real gems that can compound at earnings growth. And if you don't have much multiple compression, you know, these are going to be great long-term winners. Well, examples? Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, you know, I would say companies like Shopify, for instance, uh, which have really been structurally uh, really changed the economy, right? Because they've made it easier for merchants to do business. I mean, these are companies that are going to have permanent benefit uh, in the future, but, you know, they've had to they've had to correct. So, I mean, that's a name that comes to mind. And, you know, I mean, I don't know the valuation of companies like Zoom, so I don't really look at these names that carefully, but, you know, it's part of the everyday lexicon. So it is something that has traction beyond the pandemic. So I think investors have to do their own homework because it, it, it is sort of like sifting through rubble. Yeah. And I mean, Peloton and its massive re-rating showed us that companies that pitched themselves as tech companies during the pandemic, they may have gotten that valuation at one point or another, but haven't lived up to it. And I wonder, do you think that there are any other sort of industries that could see that re-rating as well? Something that comes to mind maybe is ride sharing, but it hasn't run up at all really during the pandemic. But do you think that it's having more trouble showing that it has a tech, real tech component? 
Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, ride sharing is a good example, like the Lyfts and Ubers. I, I think it's really probably a question for investors about how they allocate capital and, and their margin structure. But, you know, is the demand for the services strong? Yeah, it's clear. And, and they've actually, you know, they've had an impact on how people basically move around and get food delivered and, and how they think about their lives. And it, it has also created essentially a gig economy. But again, it's really... Uh, you know, for me in 2022, in a, in a year where it's transitioning, it's probably easier for investors to find uh, structural growth. Uh, and, the, and then where multiples are reasonable, that's really where you're going to see some potential for expansion. And, you know, like, for instance, I, I think even Fang, the Fang complex itself looks pretty reasonable. Tom, we've been talking about broken charts a little bit. What about broken business models? I mean, Peloton is in an interesting case where it saw this massive pull forward of demand, it seems, and then layered on a whole bunch of costs that are, are now not appropriate. So it's, it's particularly broken looking. But is there anything else like that that you see now or anything that you, might, you think might end up looking more like that as things continue to play out? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you know, like when you have hardware and service, it reminds me of the wireless industry. And uh, as you know, like when you look at wireless, maybe two companies were able to sell hardware and service and actually make make margin on both the hardware and the service. You know, it was BlackBerry and Apple and everybody else lost money. Um, so you either had to choose to be a service provider or you had to become a middleware company like the tower industry, which had great returns. So uh, I just think, you know, anyone who is trying to recast something that is traditionally a cyclical business or has, as you, you know, you're talking about, you know, very heavy items that need movement. These aren't really tech like businesses or asset light as you guys talked about. And um, unless you can charge more money with inflation an asset heavy business would work better. So for instance, I mean, that's kind of why the, the market is favoring things like financials and energy right now, because as you have inflation, their earnings actually track, uh, the inflation. But, you know, if you're selling equipment, I mean, industrial is the reason we're neutral. It, it, industrial and, and probably parts of, you know, asset intensive tech, they're a little more challenged because it, unless you can pass on those price increases, you're really talking about margin pressure. Yeah. Hey, finally, Tom, uh, you, you've done so much good high frequency work on COVID. And you did mention this week, you said it's not a forecast, but you looked at the average duration of the cycle in which various variants occur. And you said it might suggest that we could get, if we're going to get another variant, could happen in April. Um, how are you using that uh, thesis, I guess, as a play on some of these stay-at-home names? Uh, it's a good point, Carl, because if we look at the four drawdowns, uh, the big drawdowns for equities, uh, they did coincide with surges in hospitalizations and surges in cases. And we know that credit card spending took a hit big time with Delta and Omicron. So if a variant does emerge in April, and that's not a forecast as we were pointing out, it's just really looking at the same interval of the last four variants. Uh, you know, we can expect consumers to potentially be disappointed and so we could see spending dip and, and I think it would sort of bring back into favor a lot of these, you know, 2020 stay at home names. Yeah, we're gonna hope this, this cycle's different. Um, we're just gonna have to wait and see on that one, Tom. Uh, good to see you, thanks so much. Tom Lee. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks. Meanwhile, we're getting some new data on household debt levels. For that, we turn to Steve Leesman. Steve. 
Dude, yeah, the New York Fed reporting uh, that total household debt rose by one trillion dollars in 2021. That's the biggest annual gain since 2007. It was pushed higher by auto and mortgage loans. The report shows how debts rise along with inflation. They force up the size of the loans as consumers. They struggle and reach uh, to afford the higher prices. Fourth quarter debt rising by 333 billion. Also the biggest quarterly jump since 2007. On the plus side, delinquencies Barely budging and remaining low. New York Fed economists saying household balance sheets remain pretty strong. They're helped by still low interest rates, along with forbearance on student loans. The concern could come if some borrowers find their car loans are greater than their car's value down the road. The data also show some trouble among younger borrowers with their auto loans. And second, financial stress from debts could rise for some households once those student loan forbearance when student loan forbearance ends. For now, though, overall household debt, pretty good shape. And higher debt loads and the possibility of higher interest rates not yet appearing to represent much of a challenge for at least existing borrowers. So watch this space, Deirdre. Steve Leisman, thank you. After the break, we're going to dive into the collapse of NVIDIA's deal for ARM. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back. NVIDIA Arm is officially over. Uh, announced back in 2020, NVIDIA was supposed to be buying Arm from SoftBank for $66 billion. Regulators had other ideas. SoftBank now says it's going to take the company public through an IPO later this year. Arm's low-power chip designs are used in smartphones, including iPhones and Android phones, increasingly in servers and in all kinds of wearables, sensors, and smart appliances. The deal faced scrutiny from the beginning, getting pushback from the FTC, UK regulatory authorities and customers like Microsoft and Qualcomm, who use ARM's technology along with just about everybody else. SoftBank is going to get to keep $1.25 billion worth of breakup fee it negotiated as part of the deal. It's going to count as profit. should also note SoftBank reported results this morning, just barely returning to profitability, D. Yeah, I mean, the SoftBank piece of this is interesting. I think the assumption is that NVIDIA is going to be fine. ARM would have been nice to have, but um, SoftBank has been trying to unload this for some time. Uh, there's an interesting way that Masasan described, as he always does, very colorful, the quarter. Have a listen. The weather environment is bad. We are holding tight. Uh, we are still planting our seeds. 
uh, I think we're going to be uh, having a, a big uh, springtime uh, sometime soon. I mean, Carl, Masasan has weathered many storms and he has often come out on top, especially going back to the dot-com bubble and that amazing Alibaba investment that he made, one of the greatest of all time. What was interesting on that call, earnings call too, the SoftBank one, was the disconnect between private markets and public market weakness. You had someone on the SoftBank team saying that they, saying that they turned down a number of transactions in the private markets the past quarter. And that's interesting because we've yet to see sort of valuations come down in a real way in the private markets. And of course, SoftBank being one of the biggest crossover funds on the Vision Fund. Yep, uh, you make the great point. Uh, he's made enough big swings and hit the ball. Uh, he, he can afford to have some setbacks. If you want to consider this a setback, we still don't know what the future is for this company, but clearly he's got options. As he says, he's in a blizzard. He just has to get through it. Uh, let's stick with NVIDIA, though. Look at this piece of it. Joining us now is Bernstein Research Managing Director and Senior Semis Analyst, Stacey Rasgon. Stacey, uh, it, it's great to have you. Were you in the camp of this was sort of, this deal was a distraction for NVIDIA? It's better off without it? Oh, no, it's, don't get me wrong. I would love to see this close. I think this could have been huge if they could have pulled it off. Now, that being said, I don't think anybody expected it to close. Um, yeah. This is one of those things. It was a bold action. I'm actually glad they took it. I don't blame them for trying it at all. But I think the chances were always fairly remote, especially once the regulatory and customer headwinds really started to get going. Right. I would I mean, love to see that. ARM is such a unique proposition. John Ford just went through why it's so unique and different. And there's really no other ARM right now. What does NVIDIA do from here? They work on sort of developing that kind of business on its own. Is there anyone else that would be appealing in terms of an M&A target? Yeah. So, so remember, ARM is an IP company. They, they sell IP cores and other things that their customers use to, to build chips. NVIDIA is already an ARM licensee. They actually, as part of the $2 billion that they paid, some of that was for an architectural license, so they can actually do their own custom ARM designs based on the ARM instruction set. And they're pushing into the data center all by, um, by themselves. I, I actually do personally believe that the impetus for the ARM deal itself was to push broader into the data center, and, and in particular to help to create a widely adopted, robust ecosystem for ARM in the data center, which is something that is lacking today. Without that, I mean, NVIDIA is going to keep doing what they're doing. They will still build their own ARM chip servers and other things. They will still continue to try to push those in the market. But you have to do it alone rather than being able to try to steer where that whole broader ecosystem is going. Stacy, is there the risk, the chance that SoftBank and to some extent NVIDIA actually destroyed value in ARM here, though? I mean, to me, it was always weird that ARM, you know, this jewel of the UK was floating around from owner to owner when there, there didn't seem to be any big strategic value add from it being owned by someone else. And meanwhile, you had some of its biggest customers looking at alternatives, right, during this period. Should NVIDIA not treat ARM in, in the most nonpartisan way? So as ARM comes public, is that potentially a bad thing for them? Yeah. So, you know, when 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 something bought it, oh, six years ago, whenever it was, um, Part of the case there was they were going to massively increase investment to drive growth. They did massively increase the investment. They didn't really drive all that much growth. And the, the problem was most of the revenues were still smartphones. And I mean, the smartphone market has kind of plateaued since then. Um, again, NVIDIA was going to push this much broad, more broader into the data center. And they were absolutely going to ramp up the R&D to do that. And NVIDIA, I think, could, could support that. Part of the issue is, you know, they were all of them out there during this whole process kind of talking about the need for that further investment and how difficult it would be for ARM on their own to do it. 
Arm on their own is now going to have to do it, so we'll have to see how that works. Um, and your comment on alternatives is also an interesting one. There are other instruction sets. Um, the, the other one that's been getting a lot more traction, I think, while ARM has been in this sort of purgatory has, has been Risk Five, which is another uh, open uh, instruction set, which is actually free to use. It's been getting a lot more traction in China and other areas while this overing has been there. And so you could, I guess, in theory, see a case where ARM standalone is now facing more competition, especially in this instruction set IP area than maybe they did have before. So then who is this good for? Uh, Qualcomm was very outspoken, for example, in opposing this deal. There were others who were as well. Does this put any particular players in the semiconductor ecosystem in a better position than they would have been in had NVIDIA been able to pull this off? Maybe, right? So in terms of Qualcomm, I actually don't believe that like NVIDIA was going to use this to really push hard into the smartphone space, which is where Qualcomm plays. But you could imagine if NVIDIA is not prior or if NVIDIA wasn't prioritizing the smartphone space in, in favor of things like data center that Qualcomm is not doing, maybe that wouldn't be good for Qualcomm long term. So I could understand why they why they opposed it. Um, one that we didn't hear about uh, opposing it, but I'm sure was, was Intel. <laughs> and certainly if NVIDIA had bought this asset and succeeded in making ARM in the data center a bigger thing, or even ARM in PCs or, or, or what have you, um, that would have been very bad for Intel. And so I, I guess in some sense, it, it's better for Intel um, that, if, that NVIDIA does not own it. <laughs> um, is it is it a positive? Like, no, but it's like at least it's, it's less, it's not a negative like it would have been, I think, if, if, if they had been able to purchase it. Not that they want any more negatives. Stacey, okay, what about the SoftBank, Masasan piece of this? Are they going to be able to get value, the same kind of value that NVIDIA was offering for ARM in an IPO over the next year or so? Yeah, you know, we'll see. So the original, you know, deal was was around $40 billion. Now, NVIDIA's uh, stock price went up considerably since. And I think that, I don't know what the numbers I saw thrown around today, $66 billion or whatever it was. I, I'll be honest, I don't know what ARM is worth at this point because you have these issues. Um, can they drive growth? How much investment is going to be needed to drive that growth? You know, uh, how credible is the story going to be without a company like NVIDIA, like pushing? And then what value are you going to put on it? Um, especially when their biggest business, which today is still smartphones, again, is still plateaued somewhat, at least on a unit basis. Mm. So I'll be honest, I don't know what it's worth at this point, but it's likely that, especially given the increase in NVIDIA's stock price, that would have been a very attractive thing probably mm. for SoftBank to have gotten if they could have gotten yeah. Uh, Stacey Rascon, thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. As we go to break, check out shares of Block falling just a bit after Apple announces plans to introduce Tap to Pay this morning, basically an expansion of Apple Pay, which would allow you to use contactless payments. Stripe will be the first payment platform to offer Tap to Pay on iPhone to customers. A lot more on that and Peloton. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground Service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Take two is lower in a pretty good market here. Dow's up 240. We're going to hear from CEO Strauss Zelnick on the consolidation of the gaming sector in just a moment after a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. Pfizer shares are down about 4%. Fourth quarter profits were strong, but guidance for this year is on the weak side, especially for COVID vaccine and antiviral pills. Pfizer shares are now down about 15% this year. Harley-Davidson stock soaring 14% on a surprise profit last quarter. The motorcycle maker also posted Q4 revenues that were 50% above estimates. Harley-Davidson also giving encouraging guidance for this year. Profits at DuPont getting a nice boost from price hikes that offset rising material costs. The industrial materials maker also raised its dividend by 10% and announced a new billion-dollar stock buyback plan. DuPont shares are up about 5% today. And China's imports of U.S. goods last year fell 40 percent short of what was promised under a trade deal negotiated by former President Trump. Overall, U.S. trade numbers were also released. The trade deficit jumped 27 percent last year to a new record. But December's deficit was smaller than expected. You're now up to date. Carl, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Uh, Time for a gut check. As we said on Take Two Interactive, shares are in the red this morning. It's a miss on revenue and some disappointing guidance that is weighing on the stock. The gaming company said to acquire Zynga, as you know, which has subsequently set off a flurry of deals, including Microsoft's deal for Activision Blizzard. But Take Two's Strauss Zelnick says he's not worried about the changing competitive landscape. Two minutes ago, there were three three big ones. We were pretty distant third uh, with the the Zynga combination uh, and the sale of Activision to Microsoft, we become a close number two out of two. Uh, we think that's a powerful competitive landscape, and, um, and we're excited to be in that position. Uh, in the entertainment business, you compete with everyone and you compete with yourself because people don't need our products. They want our products. And if we put out the best properties in the business, and that's our goal, our goal is to be the most creative, the most innovative, and the most efficient company in the business. When we achieve that, people show up. And whether we have 10 big competitors or or one really doesn't matter. We still have to deliver. Meantime, take two is lower by about 20 percent in the last 12 months. Uh, Pretty fascinating landscape right now, John. And speaking of Microsoft, at least, I see Morgan Stanley today rolled out some new five-year models that would imply a price long-term five-year of 625, essentially doubling from here. Of course, gaming at Microsoft, just one piece of the pie. One piece of the pie. Controversial piece. I mean, uh, NVIDIA arm showing how hard it can be to get certain (laughs) kinds of deals done. We'll see how they do with Activision Blizzard. This quarter uh, from Take-Two D, really not that bad. I mean, yes, they missed the streets' hopes, but they kind of delivered some upside to their own projections. And uh, the guidance, while, again, not what was hoped for, not that bad. John, on that regulatory front, uh, it was interesting how he didn't, I guess, pull a Zuckerberg and talk about 
the competitive landscape after a Microsoft Activision deal. He said that it's going to be an interesting one, a robust one. So perhaps some confidence there. He's welcoming more competition, although this is going to be a very mighty one. Also for you, John, he was asked about NFTs by Barron's, and I think you'll like his answer. He said, we're concerned about the overlay of speculation. We expect to participate, but we have no interest in bringing them speculation. There you go. Yeah. A, Without kinda, saying the M word. Kind of hard to, uh, to to start stirring up the regulators when you're trying to get your own deal done. You know, it's kind of like be careful who draws first. <laughs> Good point. But then in, in gaming with NFTs, it's a whole different story, right? There are a whole lot of gamers who are like, get that junk out of here. We don't want your NFTs. We don't want you trying to squeeze more money out of us <laughs> in game. Just keep it fun, Carl. So you, you got whole different reactions to this, whether you're in the kind of uh, crypto world, D, or if you're kind of leaning more into the gaming world. Some like it, some don't. Fair enough. Uh, after the break, guys, a look inside outgoing Peloton CEO John Foley's stock sales company, holiday parties, and the corporate culture he helped create. Tech Check is back in just a moment. As we celebrate black history this month, we turn our attention to education. While public ed tech companies have struggled over the past year, our next guest believes that ed tech is the key to broader opportunity in the years to come. Joining us now, Lightspeed Venture Partners, Mercedes Bent. Mercedes, welcome. Um, you know, I, I like to look at these themes in black history in the context of just the broader market and what's important for the economy overall. And so when I think about education, I think about economic mobility, which has been so important for groups that started out uh, with a disadvantage. To what degree is ed tech um, providing more of an engine for economic mobility uh, in an economy that hasn't been delivering so much of it lately? Thank you, John. And I completely agree. My interest in the ed tech field stems from the fact that ed tech and career mobility is one of the best opportunities for economic advancement. And what we're seeing at the early stages and late stages of the sector as a venture capital investor is that there's companies that are leveling the playing field at every step of the career journey. When we first think about the career journey, people are starting out with discovery. They need to figure out what jobs are even out there. And there's companies like Forage, a company we're investor in, that lets candidates try out projects and work samples from companies like JP Morgan and General Electric and BCG or Lyft to try their hand at what a work sample would be like before they ever join the company. Handshake is another company that does something similar. They help students, 20 million of them, find opportunities of how they can get connected to employers. And that's just another element of the career journey that gets them on that initial path to having that economic advancement that we're talking about. Here's a challenge that I see, though, in these models is it's unclear to me who is that real primary customer, right? Because you see some companies that are looking at the um, ambitious student, learner, as the, as the customer. You see more companies now that are turning to employers that want to provide education as a benefit in a tight labor market to entice the workforce 
them uh, as the customer. And some are even looking at universities themselves as the customers for technology platforms to help them to transform. But it's not clear to me which of those or some other is really going to be the deep-pocketed customer that's going to drive revenue and growth for EdTech overall. You're completely right. And I think this has been a criticism of many ed tech companies over the years is that oftentimes the if you're thinking of the end consumer as the buyer, they always don't have enough you know, money or it's very episodic. They want to pay for one course and they don't come back. And so that doesn't create the most sustainable revenue stream that you know makes for a great valuations. I think what we have seen is some of companies using an employer paid model to really generate revenue while giving free services to students or candidates that want to learn. For example, Multiverse is a company that works with apprenticeship. They create apprenticeship programs for employers so that kids can go directly from high school into the jobs, sometimes bypassing their bachelor's degree. They work with employers like City and KPMG on job training and mentorship that's on the job versus doing it while you're you know, uh, just learning. And so that makes it better for the employers to say, hey, we're paying for someone, but we're getting benefit out of this training at the same time. Really interesting companies. Uh, Mercedes, though, we talked a little bit earlier about the froth in private markets and how crossover funds like SoftBank's Vision Fund are becoming more selective, maybe doing less deals. Is there a risk that spaces like EdTech start to see less capital, less deal flow as investors get more selective and perhaps want to go to some of the buzzier spaces like Web3 and crypto? I think that we'll always go through these cycles of seeing different sectors get their shine. And 2020 was a huge year for EdTech as we saw the great uh, uh, pandemic taking everybody online for both the K-12 and the career mobility companies. And right now, I am also personally spending a lot more time in Web3 and crypto because that's where a lot of the interesting companies are coming. But, you know, we still see the crossover of funds, um, the tigers of the world, spending time with ed tech companies. One of our uh, portfolio companies, OutSchool, announced a fundraising round from them that valued them as a unicorn. And so we certainly do still see a lot of interest in this sector. Mercedes, I'm concerned that EdTech, which has the potential to open opportunity to to broader groups of people, could actually, though, um, widen disparities in that some of us have uh, more of a legacy culture reflex when it comes to education and recognizing the opportunity and advancement uh, than others. So are there any companies that have figured out, startups that you've seen, a, a profitable and measurable way to get these tools into the hands of those that haven't traditionally been able to take advantage of them? It's a great question. I think that you're right. It, there's sometimes I used to think of you know different industries, for example, the tutoring industry is one that does advantage more privileged people who have the money to spend on it. But we're starting to see a new crop of companies that aren't actually presenting themselves as education companies, companies that are meeting the user where they're at, whether they're already doing investments or, or training, you know, trading and learning their first Um, putting in their first few dollars into something on Robinhood. And then these companies are saying, hey, how do we help you understand how to make that investment in a better way? For example, Trading TV is a company that is combining content and investment trading to allow to meet users where they're at while teaching them about the, the skill of investing. And so I do think it's really important that we 
don't think of education and learning opportunities as these siloed moments mm-hmm. that only happen when you're in course or in a school. They can happen all around you. And we need more companies thinking of learning as a service or embedded education within these other products that we're already using. Especially as we move more and more toward a knowledge economy. Mercedes Bent from Lightspeed, thank you. Thanks. Getting some breaking news this morning on another crypto money laundering plot. Eamon Javers has it. Hey, Eamon. Carl, that's right. The Department of Justice announcing just within the past couple of minutes the arrest of two individuals in Manhattan this morning and the seizure of a massive $3.6 billion worth of cryptocurrency. Now, what the Department of Justice is saying here is that the cryptocurrency that they have seized uh, is related to the hack back in 2016 of Bitfinex, which is a virtual currency exchange. Originally, uh, the amount taken of that uh, cryptocurrency was valued at 4.5. $5 billion. They say they've recovered $3.6 billion of that money that was stolen. They are charging now Ilya Lichtenstein, 34, and his wife Heather Morgan, 31, both of New York with money laundering in this case. They are not charging them, interestingly enough, with the hack. Uh, they say both uh, members of this married couple were arrested in Manhattan this morning without incident. They say they were involved allegedly in money laundering of those billions of dollars in cryptocurrency through an elaborate system of washing of currency all throughout the cryptocurrency system. And what they're saying here is that this shows that the United States can track fraud on the blockchain mm. and they can track uh, cryptocurrency just as well as they can, can track uh, any kind of currency that's stolen in the real economy. Carl, back over to you. Eamon, this isn't the first time that Bitfinex has faced scrutiny from lawmakers. Uh, It is, of course, the company behind Tether, the most widely used stablecoin. And there's been lots of questions about what backs Tether, which is last time I looked a 70, 80 billion dollar market cap. What kinds of questions could this raise about the stablecoin if a company like this backs it? And, you know, the central bank is looking at its own companies in the stablecoin space are trying to vie for more transparency. It just kind of seems like a disaster. Well, there are a lot of questions here, including who did the original hack here back in 2016. Uh, Law enforcement officials briefing reporters just a few moments ago did not say who was responsible for stealing this $3.6 billion that they've recovered. And if you are a person who believes that your cryptocurrency, your Bitcoin was stolen back in 2016, they say there will be a court process now for people to apply and say, I've got a claim against those those recovered assets. That could take a while, but there's the prospect now that people whose crypto was stolen back in 16 might get paid back uh, here in 22. And of course, that cryptocurrency has skyrocketed in value since it was stolen back in 2016. Interestingly enough here, they're also saying that the married couple at the heart of this, Lichtenstein 34 and Morgan 31, used the illegal proceeds of this alleged theft in order to buy things for themselves, including gold and also NFTs. So this money was plowed back into, allegedly, the sort of online crypto uh, economy. And we'll have to see how they untangle all of that as well. Wow. Uh, charged with seeking to launder almost 120,000 Bitcoin, Eamon. Uh, remarkable. Uh, thank you. That's our Eamon Javers. Uh, we are watching the markets here close to session highs. Got a near 1% gain on the Nasdaq right now. And the Dow is up 300.
Let's get back to Peloton. Shares up 25% now as it names the new CEO and plans to cut costs. We talked about who the new CEO is, but what about the man that he is replacing, John Foley, who founded this company and has run it for a decade. Our Robert Frank has a look at Foley's stock sales and the company culture he helped create. Robert. Good morning, D. Well, Peloton Insiders as a whole selling over $500 million of stock over the past year and a half. And the biggest seller was the CEO, John Foley. Foley selling around $120 million in company stock. It's about 16% of his holdings. Most of those sales were at $110 a share or higher. They were all through a pre-scheduled sales program. Now, according to SEC filings, Foley also pledged 3.5 million shares as collateral for personal loans. So what did he do with all that cash? Well, in December, he reportedly bought an oceanfront mansion in East Hampton for about $55 million. Report says he also kept a yacht at a nearby marina. That was for shuttling his family back and forth from the city. Now, also back in December, right before, or I should say right after imposing a hiring freeze, Foley hosted a black tie holiday party at the Plaza Hotel for Peloton's instructors and their partners. Employees were not invited, so there was a backlash Afterwards, Foley sent an email to employees saying, quote, I have since learned that this personal event had caused frustration and angst within our team. Please know that was never the intention. Tomorrow, we're going to focus on business-related topics, not personal events. And John, I will always be the first to say this is his personal wealth. He can do whatever he wants with it. But the timing of these sales and this spending relative to what shareholders and employees were going through may have added on pressure for him to step down. Certainly, Robert. And, uh, you know, in some of these cases, uh, I don't have Peloton in mind specifically, but it wasn't the company itself that caused the stock price to go so high. It was investors getting excited. Robert, thanks. Also want to get a check on Just Eat Takeaway, Grubhub's parent planning to delist from the NASDAQ. The stock will continue to trade on the Amsterdam and London stock exchanges. Tech Check is back in a moment. Let's, let's get a gut check on Airbnb. BTIG downgrading the stock from buy to neutral, pulling their 190 price target. Concerned about multiple compression and unsustainable expectations post-Omicron. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing, and that is Peter Thiel stepping down from Meta's board. Julia is back with us on what that might potentially mean long-term, Julia. I think it means that this, this was a move that was a long time coming, Carl. Peter Thiel was so closely aligned with President Trump and invested in his campaign and worked on his campaign and was an advisor for President Trump throughout uh, his time in office. And I think that as Facebook faces regulatory scrutiny from all sides of the aisle and as Teal looks to support some key folks running for, for Republican seats, I think this is a way for them to avoid more scrutiny there, guys. Uh, yeah, very interesting. And we'll see whether or not it's related at all to the company's future growth prospects. A lot of speculation at this point, but Julie, appreciate that. Yields haven't moved around a whole lot, but we are sitting close to session highs. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.